Will you please stand with me as we read God's word one more time. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If, if you're able to stand, stand. I want to read verses 14 through 21. The apostle says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? You may have a seat. <clears throat> Most of us have been in that situation where we are out in public and we see a person and we say, that person looks really, really familiar. I know that I know them. I hope that I don't cross paths with them because I know I should know them, but I just can't place a name with the face, and if we run into each other and if we talk, I'm going to be embarrassed. I, I, I should, but I, I just can't place it. Well, as you can see, we've sort of done that at the end of chapter 4 here. Maybe some of you might have noticed Paul has returned to a familiar subject that he began, or where he began, and that is the subject of power. You, you might have noticed in, in those, some of those final verses, we have two references to the subject of power. And you'll remember that he began this whole issue. We've been studying it for months now, but he began this issue using this same subject, the, the same topic, the topic of power. And now he's concluding with the subject of power. That's how we know the Bible didn't originally come with chapters and verses, but one of the ways that we know that he's bringing one thing to a close and beginning another one is when we see these bookends. He began one way, and then he ends with sort of that same subject. He brings it full circle. That's what he's done here. The Greeks had their wisdom. The, we've seen the, the wisdom of words, the wisdom of philosophy, the wisdom of ideas. It was a wisdom that manifested itself in a lot of talking, but it had no power. It had no effectual change-producing agency. The, the snapshot we get of this is when Paul is in Athens. And what does it say? They loved nothing more than to spend their time hearing something new. What do you got for us today, Socrates? What do you got for us today, Demosthenes? What, what's the new thing? Let's talk about it. And they would talk. And that, that's all they wanted to do was hear ideas and talk, talk, talk. But they had no power. For all of their wisdom, and we could put the whole world in this category, for all of its wisdom, the world cannot change its condition. The Greeks could not change their condition for all of their wisdom. 
And therefore, in every generation, wherever man's wisdom prevails, you just see the same cycle continuing. It might look, there might be some, some outward facade that looks a little different, but every generation, it's the same thing. Every generation is born in sin, and every man comes along in sin, striving to promote himself, his ideas, his thoughts, his opinions. You take it to the national scale, then nations want to promote their opinions and ideas versus other nations, and nations war with one another in every generation. And always in the midst of every society, there are these men, the the so-called wise men, who are trying to bring about some change. Every every generation, aha, we figured it out. Here's the thing that will settle the the issue. Here's the thing that will finally bring peace. Here's what the real problem is. If we could all get on the same page on this issue, if we could get on the same page of that issue, then we would be able to solve all of our problems. Every generation has this so-called wisdom. They're all trying to fix what they perceive is the problem. They all know there's a problem. Everybody's trying to fix it, but they can't. The truth is, as we've seen, man's wisdom... Man's thinking, man's philosophy, man's opining can't fix the problem because there's no power in it. And so Paul comes along and what does he say? He says, I didn't come and I didn't preach man's wisdom. I preached Christ and Him crucified. That was Paul's message and that is a message that is completely opposed to the thinking of man, a scheme entirely opposed to man's wisdom. Paul preached a message that to the world is absolute foolishness. We want to fix all of man's problems. But what are everybody pitch in your ideas and your opinions? Okay, in comes this idea that God becomes man and dies in the place of sinners. Well, that definitely won't work. Throw that one out. That's clearly foolish. Anybody else got any other options? Completely antithetical to the way that fallen man thinks. That's the way Paul preached because Paul knew that there was power in the cross. We saw this in chapter 1 verse 17 that he he didn't want the cross to be emptied of its power which assumes as we saw there that there is power in the cross. What kind of power is that? Well he says to those who are being saved it's the power of God. Another way to say that he says in Romans 1 the power of God unto salvation. We don't want the cross. Paul didn't want the cross to be emptied of its power. What power? The power to save man. The power to do what man could not do for himself. And Paul had experienced that power. Paul preached not the mere words of human wisdom, but he preached Christ and Him crucified. We saw in chapter 1 verse 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. He preached Christ and Him crucified. And that came, as he says in chapter 2, in a demonstration of the Spirit and power. What does that mean? He says, when I preached to you this foolish message, things began to change. There was real power. Now moving on from there, we've learned that Paul himself lived a life of humiliation in this world. And we saw last week that he responded to that in Christ's likeness. We saw in verses... We could summarize it with verse 13 or the end of verse 12. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. They responded to all of this with Christ's likeness. This, this again, 
was a demonstration of power. Not worldly power. Worldly power says that when you are reviled, you come back with a a better reviling. You come back stronger. When persecuted, you come back with more strength. When slandered, you come back with the the right defense to, to leave your enemy in a puddle on the floor. That's the way the world thinks. That's worldly power. Paul responded as Christ responded. That showed, that was an evidence of the power of the cross. He knew this power. This is the power we saw which overcomes the world. A power which triumphs over the thinking of the world. A power that raises your mind and your thinking above the thinking of the natural man. Just as the eternal God stands outside of time, so also, in a sense, our minds are lifted outside of the things of this world and we begin to think in a way that is separated from the schemes of man. And it was the cross and by the power of that cross that Paul had undergone a real change. And Paul knew that the only effectual change-producing agency was to be found in Christ and Christ alone, Christ crucified and the preaching of that Christ crucified. And it's the same with every one of us who's been born of the Spirit of God. Through that power which has been issued to us, the virtue of the death and resurrection of Christ to us, when that comes, the Christian undergoes a real, lasting, eternal transformation. The thing that the wisdom of man cannot produce, and that's true power. But again, we return to the Corinthians. And what we've seen is in that many ways, and we will see this as we go through the letter even more, they were not living according to such a transformation. The transformation wasn't there in a lot of ways. They still lived according to the world's wisdom and the world's rules. They had brought the world's wisdom into the church. Listen, when you, you, can, you can have one of two things in the church. The world's wisdom, man's wisdom, or God's power. you got to pick. You bring God's wisdom into, or man's wisdom into the world, man's thinking into the church, God says, fine, have it. He will not join with that. They don't go together. That's what the Corinthians had done. They brought in man's wisdom. They thought that they were doing great. But there was no power. They, you could tell by the way that they were living. And so Paul brings this back to the heart of the matter. Power. The power of God. The power of Christ. The power of the cross. He says, here's our standard. Power. Here's, here's the measure. Power. In holding to the wisdom of the world, they had forfeited the power of the cross. And what Paul's been saying is, everything I did was contrary to the wisdom of the world in order that the cross would not be emptied of its power. That's what he's been saying this whole time. Simply put, in Corinth, there was lots of so-called wisdom. Lots of boasting. Lots of talking. But there was very little power. And so he closes with that subject, the subject of power, and he he promises them that he will come and he will measure them with a measuring rod, not of talk, but of power. 
So let's look at our text together. In verse 14, we see Paul's purpose. He reminds them here again of the purpose or the reason why he had spoken so harshly in verses 8 to 13. Negatively, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Now, to understand this, we might would insert the word merely. As if it read, I did not write these things to, to merely shame you. It was not Paul's intention to merely shame them, although that certainly probably did happen. Often it does happen. Often, I would say pretty much every time, there's going to be true repentance. There has to be a shame felt for one's sins. As our confession says, abhorring oneself. If you're not ashamed of your sin, well, you, can't, you won't turn from it. There had to be shame. Such sarcastic irony that he used is designed to bring shame and reproach upon sinful attitudes and behaviors. What he's saying is, that's not the only reason I spoke that way. That wasn't my goal, was just to humiliate you and then walk away. His ultimate purpose, positively speaking, was to admonish them. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. The word admonish means to teach or to encourage or to give counsel, and here's the important part, with a healthy dose of warning. With our children, we'd say, you better not do that because if you do, this is going to happen. Here's the instruction, and here's the warning that comes along with it. Admonition is usually that, and this word is very often in Scripture associated with a parent's teaching of their children. We don't just say, give them a list and say, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But we give them warnings. Here's why you don't do this. Here, here's what's going to happen if you go down this pathway. That's admonition. And this was exactly Paul's angle toward the Corinthians. He wanted to admonish them, he says, as his own beloved children. That's his angle. I did not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children, as children that I dearly love. And they are just that. They're his spiritual children. Note in verse 15, we see Paul's position. Paul's position. Verse 15, he says, For though you have countless guides, and some of you have the footnote there, it reads literally, you have 10,000 guides, or we, we might read it this way, we would say, even if you had an innumerable number of spiritual leaders, though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see, Paul spoke to admonish them as the children whom he dearly loved because they were just that. Spiritually speaking, they were his beloved children. In the providence of God, Paul had become a father to these Corinthian saints. You say, how does that work? Well, he brought the gospel to them. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is through the preaching of the gospel. James tells us that our heavenly father has brought us forth by the word of truth. That's the, the picture of, of delivery. A lot of you ladies have been there. 
Baby's coming out. Delivery. Brought forth. We've been brought forth by the word of truth, the, the, the gospel. So spiritually speaking, those who brought that word of truth are like spiritual fathers who bring the precious seed of the word and we are born again. That was the relationship that Paul shared with the saints in Corinth. He was their spiritual father. He was the one from whom they heard the gospel and had been converted, had been saved. A very special relationship that, that he had with them and that they had with him. So his aim was to admonish them, to teach them with warnings, and that came from this fatherly position that he had with them, this fatherly love. You're my beloved children. That's why I spoke so harshly. Not to leave you in shame, but to shame you so that you would then learn. And he says that in 2 Corinthians specifically. Paul's position was that of a spiritual father. Out of this same fatherly love and desire to protect the saints from spiritual harm, we see in verse 16, Paul's plea. Paul's plea, he says, verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And you can tell that the language, this is a passionate plea. I urge you. He's urging them, set aside this worldly attitude and imitate me. Every father... Spiritual father, biological father, we could really say every, especially spiritual leader, if you're leading people, you ought to be living in such a way that you can look at those in your care and say, listen, just do what I do. Just follow me. Imitate me. Later on in chapter 11, he will say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Obviously, Christ is always the ultimate example. But the blessing of God is that we often get to see little illustrations of Christ's likeness in those that God has placed over us as our leaders. Hopefully it's clear. Whatever is not Christ-like, don't, don't imitate that. Don't follow that. Christ-likeness has to be defined according to Scripture, not opinions. A lot of people say, well, I, I like to imagine Jesus was like this, or I think Jesus was more like this. We have objectively the, the, the witness of who he was and how he acted and how he spoke. We don't have to surmise about what Christ-likeness looks like. Whatever is not Christ-like, don't follow. Whatever is Christ-like, again, this, the blessing of God that we get to see it a little bit in the Scriptures, but also in those who live before us. Pay attention to this, especially young people. There's safety in following the pathway of a wise, experienced leader. There's even greater safety in following the pathway that you know, of, of one that you know is walking in the tracks of Christ. You say, I know that they're pursuing Christ. I'll follow them. There's safety there, but there's great danger in striking out on your own pathway or the pathway of the world. Now, that's very un-American, right? In America, we think we are all Lewis and Clark. Like, it's all of our job to load up the wagon and strike out on our own course, chart our own territory, leave our footprint in the world, make, make a name for ourselves, and then stand out from the crowd. That's, what we're, we're, that's worldly philosophy, 
Paul says, that's dangerous, don't do that. I would say that's demonic thinking. As we read in the Song of Solomon, pastor your flock close to the tents. Stay close to the shepherds of my people. Walk where the people of God are walking and have walked. Find that pathway and stay in it. That's where there's safety. It's only danger outside of that. That's what he's saying. So he's urging them. He's, he's pleading with them. Just imitate me. Then in verse 17, we meet Paul's proxy. Paul's proxy. He says, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. In order to make this pathway more clear, Paul sent them a proxy, Timothy. A proxy is a substitute or a stand-in, one who comes in the place of another. Paul says, this is why I sent you Timothy. Now, Timothy's not there yet. Timothy is more than likely on his way, making probably going through other churches. He's on his way to the church in Corinth. But Paul says, I've sent you my, my stand-in. I've sent you Timothy so that you can imitate me. Now, how does that work? I've sent you Timothy so that you can imitate me. Timothy will remind them of Paul's ways. To the Philippians, speaking about Timothy, Paul said, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy was a help to the Apostle Paul like nobody else. There, there, was, there was what we typically refer to as the apostolic band, people who were with the Apostle Paul. Luke was there very often with the Apostle Paul. Nobody was like Timothy. Timothy stuck to Paul's side like a father or like a son with his father. In the days when a son was almost always assumed to follow in the steps of his father in life, take up his father's business, his way of living, he would follow right behind him, learn all of his ways, all of his thinking, all of his teaching, and then when the father was unable to work, then the son would take over and do exactly what his father had done. And this is how Paul was with Timothy and Timothy with Paul. Timothy had imitated not only Paul's practices, but also had imbibed all of his priorities, all of his interests, all of his ways, as he says. He will remind you of my ways in Christ. So to send Timothy was almost like having a, a young Paul with them. Paul was giving them a living, visible example to follow. Imitate me. This is why I send you Timothy. Watch Timothy because Timothy's been watching me. And if you will imitate Timothy, you'll be imitating me. Timothy would remind the Corinthians of Paul's ways. Because the Corinthians, like all of us, were quick to forget. Paul had been with them for 18 months. There's no doubt that Paul's way of living was... Very, uh, it stood out greatly from everything the Corinthians had ever seen, but they had already forgotten. And we're the same way. Without a living example, our eyes drift very quickly back to the ways of the world. We are visual people. What we are looking at, what we are watching, that's what we become. God made us that way. And without a living example to look at and to follow, 
well, we, we start looking at everything else. And so it is in the absence of the physical presence of Christ, in addition to the written word, God has blessed His people with living illustrations of Christ-like virtue. Illustrations of righteousness applied in real time. He's mine, so I can do that. Christ has blessed His people with living illustrations in every generation. God has not left us without some, some glimmer of what godliness looks like, of what holiness looks like. And Timothy would be this for the Corinthians. He would be like a living replica of Paul himself. He would be able to exhibit the doctrines, exhibit the practices that he had seen and heard Paul live and teach over and over again. And what does it say? In every church. See, Paul had been with uh, Timothy. Close. Stuck to the hip. And Timothy had been with Paul. In every church. And Paul would go into a church. And what did he do? What does it say? He taught the same thing everywhere in every church. Paul did not change his teaching and practice in different churches. He taught the same thing everywhere in every church, and Timothy had seen it so many times, he says, I've got this, I can, I can do it. Maybe almost with his eyes closed. Christianity, especially the activity of the saints in the church, this is very important, does not differ from place to place. Christianity is the same. Paul didn't say, well, we're in, we're in Philippi, so we need to think about how the Philippians do things. Well, now we're in Corinth. We need to think about how the Corinthians do things. No, he taught the same thing everywhere in every church. Christianity does not differ from culture to culture. There, there might be some things a little differently, but for the most part, by and large, it's the same. We would think, let's go around the world to a, a country like Malawi. Let's go, in, in, on the continent of Africa, surely it's different there. And you do have the, the unbiblical churches that conduct themselves with Christianity and have been, begun to bring in a lot of the animism and spiritism of their background, and it'll look differently. But if you go to a church like the churches we partner with, Antioch or, or the other churches there in the area that we know, it doesn't look any different than this. They're doing what we're doing. You say, how can this be? It's because they're using the same book. They're doing the same thing. They're not thinking, well, how do, how do Africans have church? They're operating from the same scriptures, the same revelation. This is what Paul did. And that's why Timothy's example would serve the Corinthians just as well as it served the Philippians. I'll send you to Philippi. I'll send you to... He had, he had such a protege that he could send him anywhere. And he said, I know when Timothy gets there, he'll take care of the issue. Paul's proxy. Then in verses 18 and 19, we see Paul's promise. Paul's promise. Some might have taken what he, what he just said as sort of a sign of fear. Oh, yeah, of course, weak Paul. Of course he's not going to show up. He's not man enough to show up. That's why he's sending that kid to do his work for him. He's sending Timothy because he's not bold enough. Timothy <coughs> clarifies. Now, he says in verses 18 and 19, Some are, argument, are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Same word that was used earlier in verse uh, 6 for puffed up is the word arrogant here. I'll find, I'll, I'll, I'll find out these puffed up people. 
See, they had thought, Paul's not coming back. And they had begun to arrogate, to take authority for themselves. Those who arrogate authority for themselves are the arrogant ones. I'll find out the talk of these arrogant ones, those who are taking authority for themselves. He makes this twofold promise. He will return, and his aim will be to investigate the true power of these opponents. Now, by power, he means efficiency. Wherever there is power, there's output. Wherever there's power, there's going to be alteration. There's going to be change. We could say that power is force acting upon an object to bring about a change, right? So we might measure a vehicle by saying it's got so many horsepower well, to wear on a stand. Or how, how much power to the wheels? How much power to the pavement? When that power from here gets to here, what happens to the car? The wheels spin, the car moves. It's force which propels, which changes, which alters something. That's power. Paul says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to see if there's any real power at work. Or if it's all just talk. That's his promise. And this is rooted, verse 20, in Paul's presupposition. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. This is Paul's simple presupposition which has been at the heart of this discussion from the beginning. Wherever the kingdom of God is, there will be real, effectual, spiritual power. Efficacy. Not talk. Not mere talk. Power. That's his presupposition. We'll come back to that. And we see in verse 21 Paul's proposal. He says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So he basically, at the end of this discussion, puts the ball back in the Corinthians' court. He says, I'll let you decide. I am going to come back. But it's up to you how I am when I return. Their response to all of this will alter how Paul returns. He'll either come with a rod to discipline them, or he'll come with gentleness to comfort and encourage them. If, if they remain the same, there's no change, then when he comes back, it's going to be bad. It's going to be disciplinary. And, and that's what happened. We read in, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about my painful visit. It was bad. When he had to go back, it was a hard time for them. So he did do that. But both of these options are still fatherly. You don't, you're not less than a father because you say, listen, if you do that again, you're going to have to be disciplined with the rod. I'm going to have to get the rod out. I'm going to have to give you a whooping. That, that's not unfatherly. At the same time, every father, I think, and every child would agree one of these options is certainly much more desirable. I would rather come with a spirit of love and gentleness. It's more desirable for both, but when he comes, what, what's going to be the difference is whether or not there's there's been any real power? Has there been any real change? So as I said, Paul is drawing this issue back to the central matter of the whole history of the work of God in this fallen world. You say, that sounds awful big for this little issue of divisions in the church. 
Well, let me explain. Man is corrupted by sin. Man's dead in sin. Man's wisdom, man's thinking is useless to bring about any change. Man is, we're powerless to, to, to bring any change. We can't do anything about it. Our only hope, the only hope of mankind is that the God of heaven would rend the heavens and come down and break into our fallen world and effect the change. In other words, bring the power, bring something that changes what has been set up. That's what we need, God to come and execute the power or bring the force. Well, that's what happened in the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what God was doing. In the coming of Christ, God broke into the world. God broke into man's corrupt, sinful kingdom that he was building and God set up a kingdom that cannot be shaken, an everlasting kingdom over which Christ rules. Paul's point here with the Corinthians is that wherever this has happened, wherever God has come in, has broke into the kingdom of man, has set up the kingdom of Christ, wherever that has happened, man's wisdom will be shown to be foolish and God's foolishness will be shown to be wise and powerful. The mark of their spiritual state would be power, not talk, power. Because the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. We could put it like this. The mark of the kingdom of God in an individual, in a church, in a ministry, in the world at large, the mark of the kingdom is power. Power. So is God using these new teachers in Corinth? Is is God working among you? Is God really using worldly wisdom? Well, we'll find out. We'll find out if there's power. If, he, if God is using it, there will be power. Do these super apostles preach in a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power? Is the power of God at work among you, Corinthians? Is your worldly wisdom producing the power of God? Those are the questions he's going to come with. He's going to say, show me the power. Show me the evidence. Show me the change. Is there power here? Why? Because the mark of the kingdom of God is power. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Where there is no power, there is no kingdom. Where God is at work, there will be power. Not mere talk. Not talk or mere talk. Now we live in an age of non-stop talking. If not with their mouths, now we've, we've expanded it to the keyboard or the pen. But there's just non-stop talking. People can't endure silence. They can't stop vomiting their own thoughts out enough to be taught to listen. They are quick to speak, slow to listen. The opposite of the scriptural command, which says be slow to speak, quick to hear, quick to listen. That, that's our, our world. And it has not always been this way here in our, our land. There was a time... 
And some of you have probably heard statements like, you know, children are meant to be seen, not heard, and things like that. And we, we might think that that sounds a little harsh. But, but the general idea was there was a time when it was understood that in certain company, in certain places, there are those who talk and those who don't talk, those who listen and learn. With my children, we have a, a little rhyme. It's the same word, but we say, when adults are talking, kids don't talk. If, if you see two adults talking, you don't just walk in and interrupt. If, if adults are talking, kids don't talk. Or we'll say, you don't walk into a room talking because you don't know what might be happening in that room that you might interrupt. That, that just the general idea that there are times and places for certain people to speak and others to just listen. And that it wasn't long ago when that was normal. If the old men were talking, the young men didn't talk. If the old women were talking, the young women didn't talk. They listened and learned. And, and this is still the case in many unbelieving cultures. They're, they're not Christian, but there are classes of people. And the lower classes know when, when, when I'm in the presence of these people, I don't talk. It was understood. I'm not saying we have to go back to that or we should go, go back to anything. What I'm saying is our culture has gotten to the point where there are no limits. It's, it's nothing but non-stop pouring forth of speech. Everywhere we look are, are words. Words of promotion, words of advertisement, words of praise of a thing or condemnation of a thing. Enough words to give you a little snippet of an idea of something to help you form an opinion without really knowing the rest of the issue or the, the rest of the information. Words to get our minds thinking, words to get our mouths watering. Speaking of watering mouths, in most restaurants nowadays you're going to find a TV in every corner, every one of them playing a different sporting event or news outlet. On the side of the screen, you're going to watch one game on the side of the screen or the bottom of the screen, they'll have the scores from another game and then on the bottom of the, the side they'll have the latest news or gossip about the players themselves. If you're watching the news, you'll see the, the current news recording live and then you'll see news that was recorded earlier yesterday and then across the bottom of the screen you'll see breaking news and then in, in the corner or uh, every hour on the hour you've got weather updates just constant forcing information words 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 and then between those scenes of sports or news or whatever it is you've got several minutes of, of commercials advertisements what are they advertising another show don't worry don't Keep your seats. When this show's over, don't worry. There will be another one. Just stay calm. We're going we're to bring you another one. You're watching this game, but don't worry. There's another game coming up. Just stay calm. Advertising something, some gadget you need to buy. I, I was amazed recently when we stayed in, the, in a hotel. The, the number of advertisements just peddling psychotropic drugs. This, that's just advertising constant, the forcing of drugs upon people. You need this medicine, that medicine. Have you ever felt this? Have you ever felt that? You ever felt this? You ever, felt, you ever had, had a bad day? You ever felt sad? You ever been sleepy? Take this, take this, take this. It's just constant forcing. Everybody's trying to figure out how to fix everything, how to make everybody happy, how to please everybody. It's not really much different in the, in the Christian world, evangelical or Reformed world. There's always going to be another podcast, another blog, another vlog, another documentary, just always something more, 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 always another response to some current event. How does a Christian feel about Ukraine? How does a Christian feel about Russia? How does a Christian feel about Christian nationalism? How do Christians feel about Christians? 
How do women Christians feel about men Christians? Here's how you need to think. Don't, don't worry. Something has happened. We're going to fill the airwaves with a message to let everybody know how to think about things. There's always going to be another conference. There is conference season. You know, that's, that's the language now. Conference season is coming up in the spring. And there will be 30 different messages. And there will be a vendor hall with hundreds or thousands of books. And I'm not, I'm not degrading all of these things or... or putting them down outright, what I'm saying is, just if you think about it, could, can you even imagine how many words are being put out into our world constantly, and yet we ought to stop and ask, where is the power? What is it producing? What is it doing? And America has more than anyone, it seems, of this type of stuff. And yet we are arguably one of the most vile nations that's ever graced God's planet. And we got there faster than most people. And we've got more of it than anybody. Where's the power? You see Paul's point? Talk does not equal power. The kingdom does not consist in, in talk. It's not in mere theory or theorizing. Today everybody's got an opinion or an idea, some way that they're going to fix everything. Everything that they touch, there's a problem there, and there are people who've got the theory that they can fix every bit of it. Everywhere they go, they can fix the grocery store, they can fix the restaurant, they can fix the church, they can fix the government. They, they've figured it out. Theorizing. Everybody's got an idea. Everybody's got to come down on a side of the latest debate. I gotta, I gotta figure this out. We were talking earlier about the Christian nationalism debate and how many sides there are. Everybody feels like they have to come down on a side. You know what really makes some Christians angry is when you say, "How do you?" They say, "How do you feel about Christian nationalism?" You say, "I don't care." Well, how do you feel about this? Well, I don't care. I, I don't, I don't know, and I don't care. I, I don't know enough to even speak to it. I, I, I can't know. But well, then you're, you're, you're considered a lesser Christian. Wait, wait a second. You don't have an opinion. You don't have an idea. You've not been sit, sitting theorizing about these things. Well, not any more than is healthy. I, I don't. I haven't. Unbelievers want to theorize about making the world better. Christians want to theorize about the very same things. It's Again, it's, it's the same thing as that Greco-Roman wisdom, that Areopagus mentality. Let's all just spend our time, the whole world, in a revolving cycle of ideas, talking about how to fix everything, and yet every generation comes along and nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. So many theories produced all the time. Some people theorize about a subject which is in itself a theory. So what do you think about this theory? Well, here's my theory on the theory. Well, I hear what you're saying, but here's my theory on your theory on the theory. Just back and forth theorizing subjects about which very little can actually be known, but we want to have a theory and talk about it. A lot of people want to theorize about the Bible, what it means, how it applies, is it true, is it false? kingdom of God does not consist in, in talk, in, in theory. How many young men are there who want to sit and think and discuss the deep and hidden mysteries of God, but if you ask them to name an objective truth from the Word of God that has been applied to their life in the past seven days, they can't name it. They've been theorizing about things that God hasn't said. 
They want to theorize or philosophize about things that God has not clearly revealed. And to a lot of people, this is the essence of Christianity. That's what they think it is. They think Christianity is to sit and come up with theories and compare theories. Again, it's the Areopagus. And yet there is no power in this. The kingdom of God does not consist in mere confessions. Confession is just talk, right? To confess is to say the same thing as somebody else, to say it with someone. Most of the world professes to be religious. A large portion of the world confesses some sort of Christian belief. A smaller portion of that would confess what we would say is true evangelical Christianity. And then a smaller microscopic portion of that would confess as we confess as particular Baptists. And yet this in and of itself is not the kingdom of God. It's just confession. It's just talk. The kingdom of God does not consist in mere confession. The kingdom of God does not consist in confessing the Apostles' Creed or confessing the Second London Confession. Confessing the faith is just talk. If that's all that there is, it's just words. And that alone bears no witness to the kingdom or the power of God. Sometimes I wonder what it would be like if we scrapped our confession, if we, we scrapped our church covenant, we had no publicly acknowledged forms of unity. That's, that's what you call your confession and your catechisms and things, your forms of unity, the, the documents that outline what you believe. What if, we, what if we got rid of all of it, at least publicly? So there was nothing. All you knew was there, there is a church called Covenant Bible church. It wouldn't take long before when people came to join, you would find out not their talk, but their power. Well, we saw on your website you confess this and you believe this and you say this and you say this. We say the same thing. Okay, that's, that's wonderful. Where's the power? Where's the power? It's easy to confess the five solas. It's easy to confess the five points. It's easy to claim reformed as your descriptor but what I'm, I'm finding more and more to be the case is that these really these things they really amount to practically nothing nothing for a large portion of people who confess them because it's just talk we live in a world where to talk just pacifies everybody well they say said the right things it's just words in our day there's there's a lot of confessing it's popular to be a confessional Christian. It's popular now to be a Reformed Baptist. That's popular. There's so much reform in people's mouths, but where's the power? Where is the effectual, change-producing, world-opposing, flesh-withering power? Where's the power? Not the words, the power. You can say that you hold the sola scriptura, but if, you're, if you pattern your life goals and your family and your children after the ways of the world, you, you don't hold a sola scriptura. You, you don't believe that. The, the crowning jewel of, of Calvinistic theology, right? Limited atonement. If you can get somebody there, well, you got them. Okay, you can, you can hold to limited atonement, but, but what's, when's the last time you saw the power of God mortifying a sin in your own life? What sins are you dealing with? 
See, that's power. Many men can bring their families to a Reformed Baptist church, and you can skim through a 32-chapter confession to get into membership. But how many men are actually taking the helm and taking an active, involved, intentional, authoritative lead in the direction of your family? How many men are doing that? Saying to your wife and your children, we believe this, we're doing this, here's what we're going. Here's, or here's where we're going, here's what we're going to do. This is what our family does. Here's where we're going. Not, what do you think we should read for family worship tonight, dear? No, are you leading? See, it's easy to just do the, the outward stuff, but no real change in you, no power, no alteration in you. Ladies, I am so thankful that you, you cover yourself with godly modesty, but are you able to cover your husband and your children and your church and your world in prayer? See, it's easy to, to look good in public. What do you look like in private? Because that's where the power is going to show. You see the difference? Can, can, you, can, you, can you see it? We've got plenty of talk. Endless words, we've got confessions, we've got doctrinal positions, we've got verbal convictions about outward religious forms. You know, I, I hold this position. Well, I, I tend to hold the, the minority position on that. I, I hold this and I hold that and I believe this. Where's the power? Just hush. Shh. Where's the power? What's it doing in you? The kingdom of God does not consist in these things. All, in the, all these things can be present and still there be no power because the mark of the kingdom of God is power. Now the kingdom of God, let's, uh, shifting a little bit, we've got to think about this idea. The kingdom of God has been defined in different ways. It's, 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 it almost seems like it's nebulous in Scripture. It's hard to put your finger on it, and I think that's because of what it is. Some would define it as the redemptive rule of God in the hearts of His people. Some would say it's merely Christianity or the message of Christianity or the application of Christianity in the life. This is all the way that men have tried to define the kingdom of God. Let me give you a few points from Scripture because this is what we're after. What does the Bible say about the kingdom? We see the kingdom of God illustrated in many of the Lord's parables. Matthew 13 is full of parables of the kingdom and each of them show various aspects of God's rule. The parable of the sower. The kingdom is a matter of proclamation. Wherever it takes root, there will be fruit. The parable of the mustard seed and leaven. The kingdom of God starts small and spreads imperceptibly. The parable of the weeds. The work of the kingdom on earth will not end. It will not reach its consummation until Christ comes down to earth. The parable of the hidden treasure or the pearl of great price teaches us that the kingdom of God is of immense value. It's, it's more valuable than anything you own or ever will own. More valuable than your own life. We see the kingdom of God more clearly described, however, in passages like Romans 14, 17, where Paul says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now think about that. What's he saying? He's saying the kingdom of God is not a matter of external religion, eating and drinking. He's saying the kingdom of God is a matter of internal, inward, spiritual reality, salvation, and the fruits of that in the soul of a man. 
But very often we get caught up in thinking that Christianity or the kingdom of God is a matter of eating and drinking, external religion. So when we say, I'm a Christian, we, we, what we mean by that often or the way that it's taken or perceived is I eat this, I don't eat that. I drink this, I don't drink that. External religion. Well, we're Christians. We do this, we don't do that. We're Christians. I go here, I don't go there. We're Christians. I watch this, I don't watch that. We're Christians. We say this, but we don't say that. But Paul says the kingdom of God is not that. It's a, it's a, it's a matter of ultimate spiritual realities. The kingdom of God... Is a matter of righteousness. Now, when you hear righteousness, your mind should go to the righteous one, God. Who is God? What has God said? What does God require? What has God done? You see, naturally, we are all religious. If the kingdom of God was, was food and drink, meat and drink, outward religion, we're all religious. The problem is, we're not all righteous, we're unrighteous, we're sinners. The kingdom of God has to do with ultimate spiritual realities. God has broken into the fallen kingdom of man in the person of the Son. Christ Jesus lives our righteousness, dies our death, and the kingdom of God comes when that righteousness is imputed to us and worked in us so that we are reconciled to God. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, reconciliation with God through what He's done, and peace. The kingdom of God has to do with being at peace with God. Well, once you're justified, once you're reconciled to God by the death of His Son, you're at peace with God. The righteous God who says, this is how you must be because this is who I am. And we say, I'm not that. And God says, I've made a way in my son. And you can be reconciled to that God. And what comes from that? When you realize, when it clicks that I'm reconciled with God, I'm at peace with God, you know what comes? Joy. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Objective peace leads to subjective joy. The kingdom of God is a matter of real, internal joy. Many people have religious rites and ceremonies and duties, but they don't have Christ. They don't have God. They're not reconciled to God. They're not at peace with God, and therefore they have no joy, no real joy. And that might be some of you who you would say, listen, I do all of the right things, but I'm still not, I still have no joy. And what do we typically think when, we, when, when that's happening? I'm doing all of the right things, but I still have no joy. Well, it must be so-and-so's fault, or that person's fault, or that person's fault, or this, or that. kingdom of God brings joy. Or you might say, I, I do all of the Christian things, but it's really the things of the world that make me the most happy. That's what brings me joy. So I'm, I'm doing all of the external religious things, but the world is what's making me happy. Again, the kingdom of God is not a matter of food and drink. It's not a matter of doing. The kingdom of God is a matter of having the Bible never says anything about spreading the kingdom or advancing the kingdom. It talks about receiving the kingdom, of, of having, having Christ, having Christ and having God, having God being at peace with God, being at peace with God, having joy. 
Now, that, I don't believe that Paul's saying that list is comprehensive, that this is all of the kingdom. I think what he's saying is that this is representative of the, the inward spiritual realities of a saving God upon a soul. When the kingdom of God comes, it's not outward religion, it's this inward stuff, real things. Now, with regard to power, we see the kingdom of God displayed in passages like Luke 11. Verse 20 where Jesus says, If it is by the finger of God that I, pass, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See what just happened there? Demons leave. They go. Okay, that, that's power. That's the kingdom of God right there. The kingdom of God came to earth in the coming of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is manifested in power as we've been saying. But what, what is this kingdom power? I said earlier, it's, it's effectiveness, it's force acting upon some object to bring about a change, right? Wrinkle those tires, pile up that concrete, change, force. Well, here we're speaking of spiritual realities, a spiritual kingdom, spiritual power. The evidence of the kingdom of God breaking into the fallen world in which we live. So I, I would define this power, kingdom power, as the efficiency of God which brings an effectual alteration or change in the state of things caused by sin. So sin has come into the picture. Sin has ruined a lot. Where's the, what's kingdom power? When God comes in and fixes that. He's doing away with that. So, so back to the illustration. Sin's come into the picture. A demon possesses this man. Christ comes, says, demon out. Yes, sir. He leaves. That's power. The effect of sin is moved away. Power. Efficiency. Acting upon an object. Bringing about a change. As we saw in Romans, the power of God. In Christ, imputing righteousness where there was wickedness. Bringing peace where there was enmity. Bringing joy where there was sorrow. Out with the ruin of sin. In with the work of God. Fixing. Changing. You see, what sin has ruined, the power of God, the kingdom of God, restores. It fixes. That's power. In Luke 17, Jesus, it says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is. There. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you or within you. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. At present, it's a kingdom that is within the people of God, in the midst of a people. As we've seen, we are His temple. God sits enthroned upon our hearts. His kingdom, God reigning in the hearts of His people. The kingdom of God is God ruling over His people, bringing real, eternal change in them. What sin has ruined, God comes in to change. And where this kingdom is, where this power is, there will be change. World opposing, flesh withering, sacrificially loving, Self-crucifying, kin, sin-killing, Christ-adoring, change. Sin has brought all this ruin. God comes in and says, I'm going to start fixing that. I'm going to, I'm going to rework all of this. 
over time. And where the kingdom of God is, you'll see new birth, you'll see conviction of sin, you'll see faith, you'll see an understanding of God's word, you'll see turning from sin, turning to God. You're going to see these changes that man cannot produce. Man can't bring it about for all of his wisdom. Man cannot bring himself to abhor his sin. He don't like the effects of it. It doesn't hate his sin and his nature. Human wisdom cannot achieve these things because they only come from a new nature. The power of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom does not consist in talk, but in power. So take all this and compare it with the Corinthians. Here's where we get our minds wrapped around what Paul's doing. We, we know that they had been enriched in all speech and all knowledge. They had exercised and were exercising many spiritual gifts, especially the gift of tongues. They seem to be hung up on that. They would show up to church. Think about it. They would show up to church and one would have a hymn and one would have a lesson. One would have a revelation. One would want to speak in tongues. One would be ready to interpret. Everybody, everybody came with something. But what was it? What is all this? Words. Just more words. Everybody coming with these things, and they thought that they were spiritual because of all of that. Now they've got these new teachers that they call the super apostles. They're full of worldly wisdom. They're full of eloquent speech. They degrade Paul, degrade his ministry style, degrade his lifestyle. The Corinthians acted as though they had arrived as kings. Right? That's, that's who they were. Now, based on what we've just seen, we have to ask, is all of that that was happening in that church... Was it evidence of the power of God? Was it evidence that God was working in that church? Well, we have, to, we have to compare it to the other things we also know about this same church. They were divided. They were quarreling with each other. They lacked love for one another. They were immature. They were arrogant. Their worship was chaos. Their church was infected with open, known sexual sin. They were taking one another to court. They were wondering if there was any resurrection from the dead. Does that sound like the kingdom of God? We say, no way. That's the, the very things in chapter 6. He's going to say the people who do these things do not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. That's what he's getting at. You're saying all of this. All this talk. Okay, look at, but look at where you are. Is there any power? And Paul says, I'm going to come and I'm going to find out, not if there's talk, but if there's power. No, that's the easy part. Compare it with the Corinthians. Right? The Corinthians are horrible. Let's bow our heads and pray. Well, no, we have to compare it with ourselves. Ourselves. Most of you don't know, I had a visit with the doctor this week, and he helped me think through these things. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, not a medical doctor, but a, the real doctor. And he was talking about just Christian things in general. And he, he said, there are many who, look, who think being a Christian means reading and talking and being interested in Christian things. You say, I like to talk about the Bible, I like to talk about the Reformation and the great doctrines of the Reformation. I like to follow the fads of the Reformed world. I like to think and theorize about biblical topics. None of that's Christianity. That's not. There are a lot of people who think that's Christianity. That's not Christianity. 
How do we know? Because none of that requires any power from heaven. Unbelievers do all of those things all the time. Some people like the outward look of Christianity. See, look at these people. They're so neat and clean and, and modest and, and they, they almost look antiquated. It's, it's almost like going back in time. You know, that's the, 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 the trad tradition right now. Let's just go back in time and look old-timey. A lot of people think that's Christianity. They're drawn to that. Other people just want to be a part of something. They say it feels good to be in a, in a community with people and to find a job or a purpose in helping others or being helped by others. But again, none of these are the marks of the kingdom. There's no power in these things. They look good. They sound good. That's the problem. That's the problem. We are so focused on the outside that if it looks good and sounds good, we must think, or we think, that must be the real thing right there. Look how, look how good it looks. And it sounds great. That must be Christianity. And we're drawn to that. It looks good. That's the problem. What do I mean? Well, when one kingdom comes and is overthrowing another kingdom that doesn't always look very pretty. That doesn't look good. We call that a battlefield, battleground. Walls of sin are being destroyed. Iniquity is being purged. Fleshly appetites are being cut off. Parent sins are being hacked to death. Little infant sins are being drug out and hacked to pieces before their parents. It, it's not pretty. When one kingdom takes over another kingdom, it's not pretty. See, the question is not, is the religion or the, the outward look of Christianity appealing to you? Is it appealing to your flesh? Is it, is it appealing to your eyes? The question is, has God come down and broken into your fallen soul, changing it from what it was to something new? That's the question. Has Christ planted His flag? Is He riding forth, conquering and to conquer with His sword on His thigh? That's the question. What's happening inside? Are you right with God? Are you at peace with God? Are you full of the joy of the Holy Spirit? See, some of you are not. And that's why you have to keep chasing all of these other peripheral things. All of these other things that are close enough to Christianity that you can keep the show, you can convince us you're Christians and other people that you're a Christian, but in your secret heart, you know that you don't delight in God. You know it. You know I, I don't delight in Jesus Christ. I like a sermon. I like church. I like singing. It feels good. When I go home, that's the last thing on my mind. Every now and then I think about how awful it would be to be in hell and how great it would be to be in heaven, but I don't love Jesus. You know that's true. You know Christ is not your treasure. You know you don't have joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's why the rest of the world is constantly being dragged in. You ever, you ever catch a raccoon in a trap? The, the leaves all around that trap are going to be cleaned up because they reach out and grab everything they can get a hold of. And that's how some of you are. I'm a Christian, but you're reaching out, grabbing everything in the world, scooping it in, trying to make you happy. It's because you don't love Jesus. Where Christ is not treasured, the things of this world will be necessary to keep you happy even though you have this outward facade of, of religion. And as we see here with the apostle, 
I do believe it is the job of, the, of, of a spiritual leader to probe beyond the externals and get to the heart of the matter. Is there any power at work in you? Any power? Think of it like this. From, from, from our perspective, my perspective, you're at church, good job. You brought your Bible, good. You sing the songs, good. Is any of this changing you? You're doing family worship, good. Is any of this changing you? You're, you're reading and praying, good. Is anything changing? Is anything happening in you? Is any of this altering you, taking what was ruined by sin and bringing it to life? Is it changing you? Is that which was ruined by sin being forcefully altered by the power of God? We could put it like this. Is your soul a battlefield? Do you feel like your soul is a battlefield? You see, it's easy to walk into church and look pretty. That's what we look at. Do they they look Christian? Do they look really good on the outside? Listen, when somebody comes off of a battlefield, he don't look pretty. He don't look, there's not a spring in his step. If he's walking at all, he's limping. He might be crawling. He might be gasping for breath, gasping for, for, for some sustenance, water, or food. It's because he's been on the battlefield. He's been at war. We look at that and we say, well, he doesn't look very pretty. That's because he's at war, you see. She's at war. She's in a battle. That person... They've been taking the kingdom by force. They've been at war all week. While you've been floating down the stream with the world, coming come to, come to church and look great, that person's been at war. And that might be some of you here. And you say, all, all does not necessarily feel well. I don't feel finished. I don't feel settled. And it's because you are at war. The kingdom of heaven is suffering violence. And you are on a daily basis taking it by force. To you, I would say, keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. Don't stop. Don't give up. It, it might get worse and worse and worse, but don't stop because in that fight, there's power. That's where the power of God is found. If you're on the battlefield, that's where the power is. You get off the battlefield, you don't need any power. You don't need anything. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. As the Lord Jesus said to the apostle Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. You know, talking, talking requires no felt weakness. Talking usually makes us feel strong. Most of us, when we get the opportunity to talk, we feel like somebody just handed us an AR-15. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'll talk. I'll I'll give them what for. I'll, I'll tell them a thing or two. I mean, I'll just talk their ear off. I'll just go. I'll just blah, blah, blah. That, that takes no weakness. It takes nothing. It makes us feel strong. Christ says, my power, not yours, my power will be made perfect when you get weak, when you realize you are powerless. That's how we often feel in, in the, on the battlefield, in the war. We feel powerless. And Christ says, there you go. That's, that's how I need you so that I can carry you. I can give you power. So may the Lord give us the grace to be weak, so that we can see His power at work in us. Let's pray.